increase his compassion for others, send him into the world in witness to your love, and bring him to the fullness of your peace and glory. Merciful God, giver of all life, we also pray for Tyler and Shelby. Give them wisdom and patience to guide Miles in the way of Jesus Christ and the faith in the church. Let your peace and joy dwell in their home, that their family life may be instructed by faith, sustained by prayer, and governed by love. Strengthen them in their own baptism, that they may rejoice as children of God and serve you faithfully. In the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You can give them another round of applause if you want. So worship here isn't boring, is it? Huh? We got lots of things going on in our life, and it is a blessing to uh, sort of see the stages of life right before you. Right? Baptism, graduation from high school old man. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so let's uh, take a look now at uh, part of the New Testament, the Bible. Uh, we're in the second chapter of Galatians. I'm going to read that a few words to you, and then we'll take a moment to reflect upon what that might mean for our lives. So let's hear the word of God as it comes to us from Galatians chapter 2, beginning at the 15th verse. This is written by the Apostle Paul. He writes, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And we've come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by doing the works of the law, because no one will be justified by the works of the law. But, but, if in our effort to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. But if I build up again the very things that I once tore down, then I demonstrate that I am a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Let's pray. Open our ears, our minds, our hearts, O Lord, that we may hear what these words are to mean for our lives in this moment for the sake of your son, Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So in J.R.R. Tolkien's great masterpiece, The Lord of the Rings, how many of you have read, read or seen the movie Lord of the Rings? Okay, about half. Okay. He tells the story of Middle Earth. And in many respects, this world called Middle-earth is a rather charming world filled with rush, lush landscapes and little hobbits banding about. But there is at the same time in Middle-earth a growing and menacing evil. All is not well. A dark force is at work and something must be done about it. And so it turns out that the sum of this evil force is localized in a ring that falls into the possession of a hobbit named Frodo. And with this ring comes a mission, and the mission is to destroy the ring. 
But the only way to destroy the ring so that it's fully destroyed is that it must be taken into the heart of evil itself, the epicenter of the dark force, the summit of Mount Doom, and there it must be cast into the volcanic crater to be destroyed. The mission to save the world has fallen into the hands of this little hobbit, Frodo, and his hobbit companion, Sam Gamgee. Three volumes of Tolkien's classic follow this little hobbit and his friend as they reluctantly take up and pursue their mission to save the world. It is a mission fraught with peril. Every step seems to have the potential of a misstep, but the two little hobbits continued armed with nothing but the call to save the world. And as they draw closer to the epicenter of evil, the top of Mount Doom, the evil forces grow in their intensity, threaten to crush them, and fill them with every reason not to go on. They, they doubt themselves and wonder if they are even up to the task. Perhaps they should turn around and go back home. And now it's the night before they reach the summit of Mount Doom, and these two hobbits, Sam and Frodo, are lying in hiding, not sure of what the next day will bring. And then Tolkien writes these words. Sam sat down beside Frodo. No more debates disturbed his mind. He knew all the arguments of despair and would not listen to them. His will was set and only death would break it. He felt no longer either desire or need of sleep, but rather of watchfulness. He knew all the hazards and perils were now drawing together to a point. The next day would be a day of doom, the day of final effort or disaster, the last gasp. At last, he groped for Frodo's hand, and it was cold and trembling. His master was shivering. It is no surprise to know that those words were written by a veteran of World War I. J.R.R. Tolkien had, as a young man, burrowed trenches on the front lines of France to repel the advance of the German-Austrian-Ottoman Empire. Later, Tolkien became a professor at Oxford and found himself teaching young men who themselves were being sent off to the next world war to repel the menacing forces of Hitler. For Tolkien, the stakes were always high. The mission to save the world was always before you. Now, as it turns out, the mission to save the world seems to find its way into the hands of people who are not up to the task. In fact, the mission to save the world always finds its way into the hands of people who are not up to the task. The ring falls into the hands of a hobbit. The fate of world wars fall into the hands of 18-year-old privates first class. The delivery of the Israelites from Egypt fall in, falls into the hands of a cowardly stutterer named Moses. The kingdom of Israel falls into the hands of a teenage shepherd boy, David. The delivery of the Messiah falls into the womb of a Jewish peasant girl, Mary. The building of the new community of Christ falls into the hands of the least qualified of apostles, Paul. The mission to save the union of the United States falls into the hands of an unqualified backwoods Illinois lawyer. If there is anything that history teaches us and that the Bible teaches us is that the world is saved by people like us. No, I should say it differently. The world is saved by people who are us. 
The heroes of today are right here. Every single one of us. The ring falls into our hands. Now this timeless, historic, biblical lesson often gets lost on us because we think that the world-saving stories are the stories that only end up in the history books. And we imagine that there is little chance that we will ever have to climb Mount Doom or that we'll ever have to dig a trench on the front lines of a war or that we will be elected president or that we'll have to confront Pharaoh. No, we say to ourselves, the folks who saved the world are the folks who are on the front page of the paper. They are the ones who are in the thin pages of the Bible or the glossy pages of the textbook, but somehow we get a pass. Somehow we get to kind of mosey along and shrug our shoulders and we get to shake our heads and we get to watch our cable news and we get to say, whatever. Whatever. What a wonderful word. Whatever. Edmund Burke said once that the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. I'd like to revise that and say the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men and women to say whatever. Whatever is such an easy word to say. Read the headlines today, whatever. Read that the Rich get richer and the poor get poorer, whatever. See talking heads shout at each other on cable news, whatever. See your parents get a divorce, whatever. See drug addiction on the rise, whatever. See your best friend turn his back on you, whatever. Whatever is the word of indifference. It is the word of disengagement. It is the word that says, who cares? It's the word that says, not now. It's the word that says, not worth it. Whatever. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men and women to say, whatever. The Galatians, this community of Christ that Paul is writing to were a community who were on the very edge of whatever. And their whatever had to do with what they were believing, what was necessary to believe about the gospel. They, they had debates about this. Some people believed one way and other people believed another way. Some said that there were requirements for admission like circumcision that Lori reluctantly talked about last week. Some thought that there weren't any requirements at all. And, and, and pretty soon they were saying, whatever. Doesn't matter, I don't care. But Paul was not a whatever kind of guy. The world doesn't get saved with whatever. For Paul, the gospel had everything to do with the gracious power and presence of Jesus Christ in our lives. The gospel wasn't a proposition. The gospel was a person, a crucified and resurrected person who is alive and inside of us. You can sit there and argue theology all day long. You can bicker about Bible verses until you're blue in the face. But when it boils down to it, Paul says, the gospel is the living reality of Jesus in our lives. It is no longer I who live, Paul says. It is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. You see, you cannot be a whatever person and say what I just said. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and who gave his life for me. It explains the life of the Apostle Paul, this misguided murdering zealot who once thought it was his mission to persecute the early church, and then something happened. Someone happened. It wasn't a proposition. It wasn't a political pithy pronouncement. It wasn't some rule or regulation. No, someone happened to Paul. And Paul looked inside of himself and found there the risen Christ, and he realized that it wasn't he who was living anymore. It was Christ who was living in him. And when Christ is living in you, then you are on a mission to be Christ in the world. And when Christ is in the world, the world changes. The world changes. It gets better. It gets truer. It gets more beautiful. And we become heroes because day by day, moment by moment, we are changing the world with the sure and certain presence of Jesus. Charles Sheldon wondered about that when he wrote his classic story entitled, In His Steps, And it's a story about a community of people in a little Midwestern town. And these people are asking the question, what would Jesus do? Now, they had WWJD about 125 years ago in the story before we got it. They didn't wear it on their wrists. They asked the question to themselves, what would Jesus do? because they knew that was the only question to ask, because Christ was living in them. The banker asked it. The newspaper editor asked it. The pastor asked it. The businessman asked it. The mayor asked it. And so as a result, the newspaper got truer. The bank got cleaner. The church got more loving. And they found that when they began asking the question, this town began to change. They were saving the world, but it wasn't they who were saving the world. It was Christ in them saving the world. They didn't have to ascend Mount Doom. They didn't dig a trench on the front lines of France. They didn't abolish slavery. But each and every day, they started with that simple question, what would Jesus do? Not not the Jesus out there somewhere, not the Jesus trapped in the Bible, not the Jesus that the preacher blah, 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 blah is about, but the Jesus who is already inside of you. The you that goes to Starbucks, the you that works a summer job, the you that attends freshman orientation, the you that, that... hits a double in the gap, plans for retirement, hits a nine iron onto the green, has friends over for drinks, takes the grandchildren to Disney World. Christ is inside each one of us, and the sooner we grasp that, we begin, hear this, we begin living like heroes. So I wrote a play once. I am a playwright. I came this close to going to Broadway. And if you believe that, I'll sell you some swampland in Florida. (laughs) And the play I wrote is entitled 45 Seconds. And it's a play based upon a real man, a real person named Cleveland Stroud. Cleveland's a real guy, as you can see, and he's a basketball coach. And he's a really good basketball coach. He is good enough to have led his high school basketball team, the Rockdale County High Bulldogs, to the Georgia State Championship. And they won. They won the Georgia State Championship. 
an historic moment, of course, in the history of a high school, and the hist a historic moment in the history of every high school player who was on that team. Cleveland Stroud instantly became a hero. But he became even more of a hero when a couple of weeks after winning the Georgia State Basketball Championship, it was discovered that one of his bench players, a kid who was on the team more for practice than for playing, who Cleveland Stroud put into the end of a game, 45 seconds left in the game, in which the Bulldogs were already ahead by 23 points. For the last 45 seconds of the game, he put this kid in. This young man, to nobody's notice, was actually academically ineligible. Not by much, just a little. Not long time, just 45 seconds. And when Cleveland Stroud noticed that his, this infraction had occurred after the end of the season, after they had already received their trophy, that this academically ineligible student had played for 45 seconds in one game in which they were already ahead by 23 points, he called his team together and told them that they had to send the trophy back to the Georgia State Basketball Association. I told my team, Cleveland said, you have to do what's honest and what the rules say. People forget, he said, the scores of basketball games, but they don't ever forget what you're made of. They don't ever forget what you're made of. They don't ever forget who is inside of you. It explains what Vicki and Bill Ball had to say when they wrote their letter to the editor of the local Rockdale Citizen paper after they had heard that the basketball coach forfeited the championship trophy over 45 silly seconds. They wrote and said, we have scandals in Washington and cheating on Wall Street, but thank goodness we live in Rockdale County where honor and integrity are alive and being practiced. You see, my friends, now nor any time is the time for whatever. For those of us who know that Jesus is inside of us, it is never a time for whatever. You can go to Harvard or you can pump gas at Sunny Sunoco. You can have brunch at the country club or cheeseburgers at McDonald's. You can be the president of your country or you can be the vice president of your homeowners association. You can storm Omaha Beach or you can pack lunches for school. It doesn't matter who or where you are. It is no longer Christ who lives in us. It's no longer we who live in us, but Christ who lives in us. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and who gave his life for me. It is, my friends, enough to save the world. Let's pray. Thank you, O oh God, for the good news that Jesus lives and he just doesn't live in the world, he lives in us. And he lives for us, he walks with us, and he empowers us to be Christ in the world. So Lord, we pray that you will open our hearts, that we may discover once again Jesus inside of us, and that we may begin to live in such a way that he will change the world. For we pray this in his name, amen. And on and on and on and on it goes 
overwhelms and satisfies my soul and I never ever have to be afraid this one thing remains this one thing remains your love never fails and never gives up never runs out on me your love never fails and never gives up never runs out on me your love never fails and never gives up never runs out on me 